Our text this morning is Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 20. But we're going to be reading this context again. We've, we've been looking at this stretch from 12 into 21. So let's read and ask the Lord for his blessing. This is, as my brother said earlier, the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears to hear, hear with joy. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, we ask now that you would... Uh, continue to superintend and bless your word to our hearts. Father, this is a work of God alone. We of ourselves can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. We call out in desperation, Lord, meet with us this morning. Teach us your word. Transform us to be more like your glorious Son. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as you have um, been tracking with us through this great section of Romans, Paul has been at pains to show us that there are really only two heads of humanity in all of world history, Adam and Jesus Christ. Adam, who is the head of all the naturally born, the earthly born in this world. That's all of us. We start in this life as sons and daughters of Adam. And what we see from this text is that Adam brought sin into the world. He introduced sin into the race of men. And through sin, death came and death reigned. And so the recurring theme we've seen time and time again through this section is that Adam as a head of all all of us, has acted as a representative for us. And his one act of disobedience has affected all of us in the negative. It has brought a judgment of condemnation. It has brought death and a reign of death for all of us in Adam. But thank God that is not the end of the story. The other head of humanity is Jesus Christ, 
the Son of the living God and very God of God. He is the head of all the heaven-born, those who were born again, born from above, not merely born of this earth. And as head of those he represents in his body, his act or his life, really, of righteousness affects all of us in the positive. He brings us righteousness of our own that he gives us. His righteousness is accounted to us. And by that we are justified, made right in the sight of God. And because of that we've been transferred from the reign of death to the reign of life. And not just life, but abundant life. Life full and free in Christ. And so we've been learning about that as we look at these two heads, Adam and Christ. And the question this morning, of course, is, are you an Adam still? Or have you been transferred to the kingdom of his dear son, to the Lord Jesus Christ in the reign of life? Now we get down to this, really the last two verses of this section of thought, verses 20 and 21. And we have really what you could call a postscript. Um, He starts the text with, moreover. Uh, It's kind of like we don't do this much anymore, but for those of you, you, use, we're not in the South here, sorry. Those of you who write letters or emails, right, you have oftentimes, or you might have um, a trailing thought, something that comes after. You've signed your name and you say, by the way, P.S., I'd like to say something more. That's what Paul's doing here in this postscript, if you will, verse 20. Moreover, he says, the law entered that the offense might abound. Now, this is interesting. Paul is bringing up the law again. And you say, well, why are you doing that, Paul? I mean, he spent chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, quite a bit talking about the law. Um, But as we saw back in chapter 3, Paul has a precedence in place, a precedent in place for Um, anticipating questions that are going to come from his audience, particularly his Jewish audience, right? And Paul, being a Jew, an ethnic Jew himself, understands this mindset. And so, as we saw in chapter 3, he anticipated several of the questions that his Jewish opponents might ask. And I think he does the same thing here as he raises this question of the law again because most certainly within that Jewish audience, they are asking themselves, what then is the purpose of the law? Paul, you seem to have set aside the law and its function in all your teaching of grace and justification by faith alone in Christ alone. What really room is there for the law? He said in chapter 3, verse 20, that it's not possible that anyone be justified by the law. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So it's not even possible to be justified by the law. And then in chapter 5, in the section we just read, verses 12 through 19, he shows us that uh, the law was there in verse 13 and 14, but that sin reigned and death reigned even before the law came into the world. So it's not even the law that condemns us. It's Adam's sin that condemned us. So the law doesn't justify us. It doesn't condemn us. Paul, what does the law do then? Surely the law was important, wasn't it? And so Paul says, look, I want you to be clear about the law. And so he adds this PS, this postscript. He's saying, look, I haven't forgotten. I understand the concern. There was a very definite purpose for the law. 
And it's this. He says the law entered, entered, first of all. Not just entered, but this word means came in alongside, was placed beside something else. Uh, it is an addition to something else. That's what's encapsulated by this word entered. And so the law comes in as something additional. And, and you might say, well, what is that? Paul says the same idea in Galatians 3, verse 19. He says, what does the law serve for? What's the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. It was added because of transgression, because of sin, God added the law. He brought it in alongside and laid it down next to something. And you say, well, what is it that he laid it alongside of? Look back at verse 12 of chapter 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world. What is it that entered the world? Through Adam. Sin. Sin. Not just particular sins, but the nature of sin. That we all have a proclivity, a tendency, a pattern and a, uh, a love for sinning because of Adam's one original sin that has passed to us. This nature has become our nature. And the Lord is saying that he's added the law, set it alongside of our sinful nature. Why? That the offense might abound. That the offense might abound. Now, abound as a word means to increase. In fact, some of your translations might use that word, increase or multiply. And as you think about the idea of increasing or multiplying, that could be understood in two ways, can't it? It can be understood qualitatively. It can be understood quantitatively, numerically, one beyond, beyond, beyond. Really, the word that he used for abound, same word translated in the English in verse 15, is an abounding that is exceeding a fixed number. It's quantitative in focus. Like the churches increased in number daily. They abounded in that sense. But in this sense, when he uses abound, he's using it qualitatively. It means to expand. It means, you could say, to amplify. It means to augment, to make appear larger. So the law is set down alongside our sinful nature in order to abound the next question I hope you're asking is, abound to whom? Abound to whom? I mean, doesn't God already know all about our sin? Psalm 139, verse 12, Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. There is nothing that is hidden from the eye of the Lord God Almighty. The darkness is the same as daylight to him. You can't go to the highest heights or the lowest depths to hide from God. He sees all because he sees our hearts. You remember in Genesis chapter 6, just before God brought judgment on the entire earth with the flood, that the Lord looked and saw something about the heart of man. Genesis 6 verse 5, this is well before the law was given. What does the Lord see? Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of the man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He saw all mankind's sin. He looked at their hearts. So, the purpose of bringing the law 
cannot be to amplify our sin to God. He already knows all about it. He doesn't need to be informed of anything. That's what it means that he is God. You say, well, what about conscience? Didn't God give us a a conscience to know right from wrong? And if he did, then why do we need the law? Well, he did. He did talk about this, in fact, in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. That everyone born in this world has a knowledge of God actually through the witness he's left of himself in creation. Everyone is without excuse by that fact alone. If you just look at creation, you know that God is. And that he's given us a conscience to know what is right and what is wrong. What he approves of and what he disapproves of. That is what's called the work of the law that's written in our hearts, in the hearts of everyone. Even the most remote person in a tribe in the corner of this earth. They know and they have a sense of morality because they know God. Not savingly, but they know him through creation. But the problem is we all suppress that truth. And our conscience accuses us, doesn't it, when we do what's wrong. It's the God-given alarm system that sounds when we cross the line. No one had to teach us that. It's built in. It's God-given. And so we already know about our sin to some extent. So why the law? Why this need for amplification? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. One The law amplifies sin to me. The law amplifies sin to me. In other words, it shows me how truly sinful I really am. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And when Paul uses the word knowledge there, he's using the Greek word epignosis or gnosis, Knowledge, Gnosticism was the word that was derived from this word, Gnosis. But he uses an even stronger form, Epignosis, which means a precise and, and correct knowledge, a true knowledge of something. You could say an intimate knowledge or acquaintance with. This is what the law does. It gives us a precise knowledge of our sin. Not just a vague idea that we've done right or we've done wrong, but a precise knowledge of exactly how we have sinned. You see the same idea that Paul enumerates in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. He says, I would not have known sin, same word, intimate knowledge, except through the law. And in verse 13 of chapter 7, but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin might become exceedingly sinful. Exceedingly sinful. So he speaks of the law as something good. In fact, he says it is holy, just, and good. And what the law does is, as it's laid down next to my sinful nature, it helps me to see just how wicked I really am in my heart. It makes me fully aware of that. It it puts a spotlight on my sin, if you will, or sets a magnifying glass next to it to help me see what was already there. You see? What God sees, he's now showing us by his law. This is what Calvin, John Calvin, called the first use of the law. And he defined it simply as this. It's a mirror. It shows you, you, for who you really are. Very simply put. So firstly, the law amplifies sin to me. That's what it does. 
but it also, secondly, amplifies sin within me. To me and within me. In other words, it prompts me or incites me to sin even more. Turn with me to to Romans 7 just to follow this train of thought here. Romans 7, let's start in verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. When we were in the flesh, that's a, a designation that means not saved. Before we were saved, we were natural people in the flesh. The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to produce death, to bear fruit to death. So there is an arousing work that the law plays when it's set down next to our sinful nature that it actually incites us to sin even more. And as we said, because Paul stated clearly that the law is good, it's holy, it's just, the problem is not in the law. Where's the problem then? It's in me. I can't keep the law. I don't even want to keep the law. It amplifies sin within me. In verse 7, he says, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Again, it's that intimate experiential knowledge of covetousness. Surely when Paul coveted before, there was a sense that it was wrong. Vague sense. But this was a clearly defined sense that is out of bounds. In eight, verse 8, he says, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. See, he wasn't aware of how powerful the, the, the law of sin was in him, so to speak. He wasn't aware of its power until the law came alongside and stirred him up his evil passions, so that all manner of evil desire now started coming out of Paul's heart, and he was aware of it. So when he says, apart from the law, sin was dead, it was actually very much alive. Sin was very much alive, and the law helped him to see that. So the law not only gave Paul an intimate, precise knowledge of his sin, but it really turbocharged his sin, you could say. It incited him to do uh, what was wrong Isn't that something that we know about, brothers and sisters? Or we knew about particularly before we were saved? That it there's something attractive about the forbidden, isn't there? The the thing that says don't touch, we just have a natural inclination. I I want to touch that. That comes from this principle of sin and the law stirring up that sin within us. Look at verse 9. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, that's the key. When the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Now, we have to remember that before Paul was converted, he was a Pharisee and he was well acquainted with the law. He was highly trained in the law. And so when Paul says the commandment came, he doesn't mean that he, didn't, he wasn't aware of the commandment before, that he, he didn't know what the law of God was in the broad sense. He did. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses 5 and 6, Paul gives us this insight into his own mind before he was converted. He says this, 
circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Blameless. He genuinely felt that he was blameless in the law. And you say, well, how can that be? I mean, he had a conscience. He knew that he was wrong in certain, when, he, when he would sin. But what he means here is he didn't have a right understanding of the law. He didn't have precise knowledge of the law. That's what he means when he says, I was without or apart from the law. He was complying with the letter of the law that said, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. And he could say, okay, I've checked these boxes because I've complied with the letter of the law, but he totally failed in keeping the spirit behind the law. Because he surely looked upon a woman with lust in his heart, and that is equivalent to adultery. And he coveted in his heart, and that can be equivalent to stealing. And he had hatred in his heart, and that's certainly equivalent to murder. His Jewishness was all outward and not in the heart. That's the point. So while Paul felt, quote-unquote, alive, he was actually in a state of spiritual death. Spiritual death. And he was just insensitive to it. But one day the commandment came. It hit him like a ton of bricks in a new way because he saw now that he was violating the spirit of the law. And he saw that his sin was against the Lord and that drove him to a position of desperation before God. So, God brought in the law. He laid it down next to our sinful nature in order to show us really the depth of our sinfulness. The depth of our sinfulness beyond the work of the conscience. He wanted us to have an intimate knowledge of our sin. Not only that every square inch of us is tainted with sin, but that we love our sin. When we're told no, we want to cross the line. So the law tells us something important about ourselves, doesn't it? It tells us this. We don't have the power to overcome our sin. We don't. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the biggest lies that our enemy, the devil, has propagated in this world. You have the power to overcome your sin. That is the seed of every false religion and cult in this world. You have some ability to overcome your sin and to do what is good in God's eyes. So that finally, at the, at the end, at the uh, final reckoning, you'll come out on top. You'll be okay. And there's an effort to that, isn't there? But our text teaches the exact opposite. It says the law entered as a magnifying glass to show us just how sinful we are and that we can't keep the law. So the law amplifies sin to me. It amplifies sin within me. And then thirdly, and just briefly on this, the law increases God's wrath toward me. Look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, um, those who are condemning others for particular sins, they're condemning themselves because they do the the exact same things. They're hypocritical in their condemnation. They're not without guilt themselves. And Paul says, don't you realize that all you're doing is heaping up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, the final judgment when God is going to render to everyone according to their evil deeds? You don't want to be in that position. And so really the law, you could say this, paints us into a corner, doesn't it? It paints us into a corner and traps us there. And the more you look at the law, the more condemned you realize you are. No one can ever justify themselves by keeping the law, by man's good works. It's just not possible. And that is the bad news. But then, thank God, we have these wonderful words. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now, That's a pretty good translation. Others in your Bibles uh, may say something similar. There's a contrast here that Paul is drawing out. Grace that increases or abounds. I'm sorry, sin that increases or abounds. But grace that abounds much more. Now, it really helps to look at the Greek on some of these things. Because what he uses here in the Greek is the word for abounding that he used in verse 15. To increase beyond number. But he includes the prefix hyper, hyper in the Greek, hyper abounding. So really what he's saying is, but where sin abounded, it was magnified, it amplified to us and within us. Grace superabounded. Superabounded. The idea is uh, like when Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says this, death is swallowed up in victory. Swallowed up. Engulfed is another good word in this connection. Grace, the grace of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, completely engulfs our sin. That's good news. The the equation doesn't balance on both sides, right? He's not just saying sin abounded, grace came and kind of canceled and met it in an even way. The scale balances. He's not saying that. He's saying the scale is heavily tilted on the side of grace. Super abounding grace. And I'd like to illustrate this for you in a couple of ways. This is, um, if you've been with us in the study, this is very much the idea of the much more statements that Paul has been making throughout, right? This is true, but This is much more true. To a far greater extent, this is true. Same idea here in this postscript. Let's look at um, Galatians chapter 3 together. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples of grace super abounding. Galatians chapter 3. Now, in Galatians 3, Paul is taking up the same question of the purpose of the law. Um, He's doing it with regard to the promise that God gave to Abraham. And he's saying, um, the law, which came 430 years after God gave the promise to Abraham, that he would bless him and give him a seed, a land, and a blessing. 
salvation, really, the whole package of salvation. The law came much later and does not annul, doesn't set aside the promise. The promise is still the promise. God is going to complete his promise because it's given to Abraham, how? By faith. That's the key. As we, keep, uh, as we are going through Romans, we have to remember the main theme, central theme, is justification by faith. So the law doesn't set aside the promise. The inheritance is not of the law. It never was designed that way. And we're now seeing the purpose of the law. What does he say here now in verse, let's pick it up in uh, verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? Galatians 3.19 It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. That's a reference to Christ himself. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Moses was a mediator between two, the people and God. But God, in his promise to Abraham, remember, he covenanted with himself. Right? He's the mediator for one or with one. Verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, or schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So the, the main idea here is that the law confines us. It, uh, the word that Paul uses there is the word for a net that uh, encloses a shoal of fish. So the law has a confining, a trapping function And what it does is it traps us in order to do what? To bring us to Christ. As a schoolmaster or a tutor, which in in these days when Paul was writing, this was a slave in the house who was a stern taskmaster who had care of the children. And the task of the tutor was to discipline the children and to bring them to school every day. So the law, Paul says, plays this function of the tutor, the schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. For who? Who are the ones who are brought to Christ? Those who believe. Those who believe. And you say, well, who are those who believe? Only those who know that they've been trapped by the law and are in desperation because of it. That's the key. You know you've been trapped by the law. It's been set down next to your sinful nature. It's shown you who you really are. It's stirred up your sinful passions. You've realized that your sin is really against God, the holiness of God, and it breaks your heart. You hate yourself when you see that. These are the ones for whom the law acts as a schoolmaster and brings us to Christ. So that when Christ is held up as the Savior of the world who takes away our sin, we see him and we believe. You see, there is superabounding grace in this section we're reading about. And it's for some. It's not for everyone. I want you to understand this. 
This is an important truth in Scripture that is recurring. This superabounding grace is for those who believe. They're the ones who are led out of the net, so to speak. They're, they're given a door out of this prison so that they are led to Christ. What happens to the rest who don't believe? They remain trapped. They're in the net. The issue is they, may, they don't realize the extent of it. They don't realize that their soul is in great danger of eternal hellfire. They don't have that sense of desperation. They go through life in a drunken stupor. Drunk on themselves, not realizing that they're in great danger. So here is the first example of superabounding grace. For the rest, their mouths are stopped. They will be stopped at the final day of judgment. And they're just blissfully unaware. Let me give you another example. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. This is the account of the two criminals, the thieves that are on the cross next to Christ. And I just want to read this account with you, verses 39 to 43. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. <clears throat> then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I wanted to bring out this account because... Um, The other two accounts of this in Matthew and Mark tell us that both criminals were blaspheming, reviling Christ. Both of them. At first, that was what they were doing. But then one apparently has a change of heart. And in fact, when the other criminal is blaspheming Christ, he rebukes him. He rebukes him and he says, don't you fear God? We're under the same condemnation. We've done wrong and we deserve our punishment. So there's an acknowledgement that his condemnation is just. His offense was amplified to him. He understood that he was justly condemned. And he recognizes Jesus and his innocence, that he had done nothing wrong. And what does he do? He calls out to him and he uses the title Lord, Master. Lord, remember me. This is a plea for grace and mercy. In fact, he's recognizing that there is no hope at all apart from the grace of this man, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of a kingdom. Remember me. And here is superabounding grace toward the one. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, God's overflowing grace came to this one man who recognized his true need who saw his sin abounding. And he cried out for desperation, in desperation. And the Lord provided a door to lead him exactly to Christ, where he was saved, on the spot, at the end, the very end of his life. What a wonderful story of the superabounding grace of God to the one. 
What happened to the other? He was left in his sin. He was passed by. I'm going to give you one more example. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Starting in verse 36. This is the account of the sinful woman who came to see Jesus at Simon the Pharisee's house. Verse 36 of uh, Luke 7. When one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him, uh, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So here we have a sinful woman um, of the city, a prostitute, who has come to Simon the Pharisee's house because she knows Jesus is there. And as she's there, we see that she is in deep sorrow over her sinfulness. She is mourning and weeping while she is washing the feet of the Lord with her own tears and wiping them with her hair. And Jesus teaches this important lesson. He says, The one who loves little has been forgiven little. The one who is forgiven a debt of only 50 denarii is not going to love as much as the one who was forgiven 500 denarii, which would have been almost two years' wages. And so it is with this woman. Her sins were magnified, amplified to her, to her consciousness. She was acutely aware of her sin. And because of that, she was willing to endure the criticism, um, the harshness of coming into a Pharisee's home 
She would have had no reason to come into a Pharisee's home except she knew that Jesus was there and he was more important to get to than the shame and ridicule of a Pharisee. But she didn't care because she was desperate. She wanted to get to Jesus and Jesus forgives her because she has faith. A faith that no doubt was given her by the Lord himself as we've been learning. Wonderful, wonderful account of the superabounding grace of the Lord Jesus to one, but not to the other. To Simon, there's no superabounding grace there. But to, to, to this woman, this sinful woman, great abounding grace. She was forgiven and sent in peace. And this theme of superabounding grace, it just you, you see it over and over in Scripture. Um, to the Corinthian church, for example, these familiar words, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Their sin abounding. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God there's grace superabounding. Or this picture of our, all of our salvation that Paul gives to Titus in chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. There's sin abounding. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs with Christ of eternal life after a miserable existence of sin and death. Superabounding grace, loved ones. I mean, it's, it's, it's everywhere in Scripture. In fact, just the other day as we were um, doing our men's study, I was thinking about the big picture of God's redemptive history with Israel. Right? You think about um, that sequence of events, how God leads Israel out of Egypt, this place of bondage which represents sin and Satan, this world, this present world. He leads them out of Egypt and led by Moses. For what purpose? To bring them to Mount Sinai where the law is given. He's laying down the law next to their sinful natures. For what purpose? That sin might abound. What happens? They're led out into the wilderness and they begin to break the law continually. After they had covenanted, we will keep every word of the law. And they were sprinkled with blood. But they begin to break the law. And as a punishment, God um, circles them in the wilderness for 40 years over a very small radius of land. 40 years wandering because of their disobedience. The sin was abounding. It was becoming uh, full for them to see. Then what happened? Moses is judged for his disobedience. You remember when he struck the rock rather than speak to the rock because he didn't hallow the name of God before the people. And so Moses is judged for his disobedience and he dies at 120 years old with full strength, no diminished eyesight or vigor or strength in his body. God just takes him home. 
And then he graciously appoints a new leader, Joshua. Joshua, who is a type of Jesus Christ, Joshua. And what does Joshua do? He takes the people who had come from the law and this amplification of sin and wandering through the desert, and he crosses through the Jordan. He takes them across the Jordan into the promised land. Grace superabounding for the remnant. For the remnant. You remember almost all that first generation was laid waste in the desert. God killed them because of their disobedience. But Joshua and Caleb, he spares, and, that, and the next generations, he brings them in. Those who believe, the remnant, his true people, he brings them into the promised land. And so it is with us, sin abounding, grace superabounding. Brothers and sisters, as we think about verse 20 in Romans 5, do you know what this is? In addition to being a postscript, isn't this a wonderful summary of the gospel? Here we have the bad news first, right? Sin abounding because the law, the law shows us our sin. But then we have the good news, grace super abounding through Jesus Christ our Lord. He first takes us to the depths in order that he might take us to the heights. Right? Isn't that what we read in Psalm 113 this morning? Um, the Lord in his condescension. This is a, a picture of Christ as he would condescend from heaven and come down to earth and, and, and take on flesh, become one of us, except without sin, in order that he might represent us. Psalm 113, verse 4, The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold what? the things that are in the heavens and in the earth, to pay attention to us who don't deserve any attention. He raises the poor out of the dust. Here's superabounding grace. Toward who? The poor. Those who not are monetarily poor, those who know that they're spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing to offer God. He lifts the needy out of the ash heap. Needy. Needy for deliverance. From our sin, that he may set him with princes, with the princes of his people. There's Colossians 3, right? That we're set in the heavenlies with Christ. And Ephesians chapter 2, he's raised us with Christ. He seated us with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Those who were previously barren, without fruit in their lives, he makes us fruitful. This is all the superabounding grace of our Lord Jesus Christ toward us. Why does the Lord want us to see this truth? Why has Paul been repeating this idea in so many different ways? Because, brothers and sisters, when we see this, when we really see this, we begin to sing, don't we? In our spirits, we begin to rejoice in God, our Savior. The gospel of Christ is much greater than all of our sin. We are never going to be condemned again and we are now enjoying eternal life, knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent more and more all the way to eternity. Are you rejoicing in this truth this morning? These are not just doctrinal ideas. This is spiritual food for us to consume and digest and ruminate on, think on. Just in closing, I want to bring to our attention that there are really only two possible responses from a person. 
when the law enters, it comes in alongside and amplifies our sin. Two possible responses, and I think that it's really captured well in Proverbs 13, verse 13. Listen to this. He who despises the word will be destroyed, but he who fears the commandment will be rewarded. See, the commandment, the word, the law, it's all the same. This is God's word. And he says there are two different responses to this word. One who despises it, one who scorns it, one who hates it, has contempt for it. And then the other is the one who fears the word of the Lord because he fears the Lord. He has reverence and respect for the word. He bows before the word. You think back to the thieves on the cross. The one was blaspheming and reviling. The other had fear of God before his eyes, right? The word produces reverence for the one who receives abundant grace, but the other who reviles is left in his sin. Or you could think of the two responses in these terms. Pride and humility. Pride and humility. For the one who is proud, when sin abounds to him or her, it produces guilt. God-given guilt, a sense of wrong, right? But rather than feeling a sense of desperation that we are trapped like that shoal of fish and we can't free ourselves, we want to do something, don't we? We want to... uh, do some variation of, I'm just going to deal with this myself. That's the attitude of the proud person. Some become religious in an attempt to do good things, to sort of cancel out that feeling of guilt that they can't otherwise deal with. Others, they might turn to drugs, alcohol, vices of different kinds, addictions, in order to suppress and pacify this guilt that won't leave them alone. It's all pride, though. It's all an attitude, I'm just going to do things my way. I'm going to handle this on my own, God. I don't need you. The other response is one of humility. When that same sin comes and it produces guilt, now it produces a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. We know that we've sinned against our Father, whom we love. And we don't want to do anything that brings shame and reproach on him. It, it causes a sense of desperation so that we cry out for deliverance. God, be merciful to me. And he does. He delivers us. And we rejoice. We praise him, right? We glorify him in that way. Some of you may have listened to the examples I gave this morning of the thief and the prostitute. And you may have said, well, those are good. Uh, those are right. But I'm not a thief. I'm not a prostitute. Uh, or you might say, I'm not an adulterer. You know, to the Corinthian church. I'm not a homosexual or a sodomite. I'm not a drunkard. Yes, I admit I'm a sinner, but I'm not as bad as that. To you, friend, do you know that the essence of the law, if you were to boil down all of the Old Testament law, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, the dietary laws, if you were to boil it all down, what's the essence of the law? It's what Israel called the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, listen to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Do you know that the worst sinner in this room or on the live stream this morning is the person who doesn't love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? More so than 
the adulterers and the murderers and the thieves and the covetous and the drunkards and all that long list. The one who doesn't love God supremely, you're the worst sinner in the room. It's the person who doesn't see his need for God. Who, when the law comes and amplifies our own sinfulness, says, don't need that. I'm actually not as bad as you say I am. It's self-contentment. It's, it's self-satisfaction, right? Um, in your bulletins, I included a quote from Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray was a South African pastor in the middle, middle 1800s uh, who sat under some of the revival preaching of Robert Murray McShane. He said this, quote, We have within us a self that has its poison from Satan, from hell, and yet we cherish and nourish it. What do we not do to please self and nourish self? And we make the devil within us strong. Look at your own life. What are the works of hell? They are chiefly these three. Self-will, self-trust, and self-exaltation. End quote. It's the person who says, um, I don't want to do your will, Lord. I just want to do my will. It's the person who says, I trust myself more than I trust you and your word, Lord. It's the person who says, um, I'm going to exalt myself and think more highly of myself and think less of you, God. It's the Pharisee in Luke 18 who says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Not like him. I, I tithe. I fast. Look at all the good things that I do. Self-will, self-trust, self-exaltation. And then you have the thief on the cross. Be merciful to me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I know that what I've done is wrong and I deserve this. See, the thief on the cross who got it right, he identified Jesus as Lord. John, the Apostle John, in his gospel defines Jesus as the eternal word of God made flesh. The eternal word of God. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is the fullest expression of the glory of God. Come in man. Taken on flesh. He is the glory of God, full of grace and truth. And then he gives, John gives this comparison with the law. He says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, there was a graciousness about the law of Moses for some. Those who saw their abounding sin and saw the door, the, the tutor that led them right to Christ. For those people... They have abounding graciousness. And the law plays a gracious role to point out who we really are. But for the rest, the law is a curse, isn't it? Curses everyone who doesn't do all things that are contained in the law. If you break even one point of the law, God says you're cursed, you're damned. Um, Moses describes the law in Deuteronomy 33 as a fiery law. It was a fearful thing when the people saw the mountain burning with fire where the presence of the Lord was. This vision of the law, the perfection and the standard of God that no one can attain, it's a fearful thing because it damns all of us, doesn't it? 
But for those who are in Christ, he is full of grace and truth. He has taken our punishment for us. He has fulfilled the law perfectly in our behalf. He's died the death that we deserve to die so that we never will be punished for our sins again. Praise the Lord. Grace abounding in Christ. He is full of grace and truth toward those who believe. What is your response, my friend, this morning to Jesus? Do you love him? Do you fear him with respect, honor? Do you bow before him? Are you desperate for him? Are you willing to risk all to be in the presence of Jesus as the prostitute was in entering that Pharisee's house? Are you willing to risk your own reputation and count it as dung, refuse, worthlessness like Paul says? That he might win Christ? Hmm. Or are you more like Simon, interested in hosting Jesus in your home, but unwilling to humble yourself to serve him? Unwilling to bless him because you don't see yourself as a great sinner with no other remedy but Jesus? Because in your heart you really despise him. Are you more like that? I pray you're not. You see, your response to Jesus determines your entire eternity, where you will spend eternity, in hell or in heaven. Jesus said regarding the world and those who have rejected him, those who have hated him, and those who will hate his disciples, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Not that they were, would have been sinless if Christ hadn't spoken with them, but they wouldn't have been condemned in this way that they've rejected the only means of grace, the only way to life by rejecting Christ. They would not have known, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. If you've rejected Christ, you have no excuse. There is no remedy for you. You've committed the unpardonable sin. There is no grace available if you ultimately reject Christ. You will be in hell forever. So Christ just like the law amplifies sin for unbelievers. But for us who believe, he is superabounding grace. We recognize him as Lord. We recognize him as Savior because we've been moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. Amen? That's right. The word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow to the innermost part of who you are. The word cuts both ways. It's a two-edged sword. For some, it cuts them in a, to, to, to destruction. It destroys them, ultimately. For others, it cuts us in this way, sin abounding, that we might be led to Christ. It creates the wound so that we would have desperation. It creates a hunger so that we can be satisfied by nothing but the bread of Christ. That's what the word of God does to those who have abundant grace my friend, if you are indifferent to Jesus this morning, open your heart to him. Open your heart. Today is the day of salvation. It will not always be so. Christians, we love Christ, don't we? Not perfectly, but our hearts are for him. More and more, we want to serve him. We are his willing slaves. My prayer is that you are rejoicing in the Lord this morning as we consider these truths together. But where sin abounded in your life and my life, grace superabounded. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we are so privileged that you have not passed us by. You have showered us with your grace. You've condescended condescended to meet us where we were in the muck and the mire, writhing in our own sinfulness, Lord, in the dust. And you have rescued us. You've lifted us. You have washed us with the blood of your Son. You've clothed us with the righteousness of your Son so that when you now look at us, you see the righteousness of Christ. You have set us on high. When you raised from the dead, we raised from the dead. And Lord, because of this, we have absolute assurance of eternal life before us. Father, this is not our work. This is your work. We acknowledge you. We humble ourselves before you and we we have hearts of gratitude, Lord. For those who um, don't know you, I pray that you would do this heart work, this surgery with the word of the sword of your word, and that you would cut in order to heal, that you might bind up and show yourself a mighty Savior, that the one who knows he's been forgiven much would love you much. That's it. Help us, Lord. Thank you for your people. Thank you for this great privilege. Thank you for for using weak vessels like us to accomplish your mighty purposes. You receive all the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.